Humanity is growing and connecting. Tomorrow's world needs more energy from more places. But to find our net zero future, we must overcome the natural constraints of many new energy sources. This is the Energy Transition Solutions Podcast, where we look at the energy challenges of modern life and the innovators finding solutions. Join us for a low-carbon, high-energy conversation with your host, Joe Battier. This views of the host are his own and should not be viewed as those of any business, corporation, or government entity. Hello, and welcome to the Energy Transition Solutions Podcast brought to you by AWS Energy. I'm your host, Joe Batier. This is the show where we bring you low-carbon, high-energy stories from the people solving the energy challenges of modern life. I'm here today with Andy Bennett of Emprest. Emprest is a global vendor of real-time and mission-critical orchestration and optimization software. Yes, I read that directly off of their website, and the reason is because Andy tells the Emprest story way better than I ever could, so I'm gonna let him do that. With that, let's get into the interview. Thank you, Andy, for joining me today on the show. If you would, please share with me and the audience your background and introduce us to Emprest. Yeah, thank you, Joe. And uh, yeah, great to uh, great to join you today and join the audience here. Um, real briefly, my, my background, because it's a lot less interesting than the background of Emprest, uh, has been historically in the um, energy market. Um, really building software and software companies that focus on solving some of the most complex energy problems that we've got out there in the industry. Um, so I've been doing that for a little over uh, 20 years. Um, background of Emprest, uh, probably a little bit uh, more interesting to your audience. Emprest is a company that started in Israel and the company really was founded uh, with the drive to build the command and control systems for the missile defense system inside the state of Israel. That's the um, defense system that's often referred to as um, the Iron Dome. And so really um, looking at how to solve that problem, how to think about um, how do you deal with millions and millions of sensors? How do you distribute that computational power um, so that you can make extremely rapid decisions and then, you know, ultimately, um, you know, how do you scale that up so that you can use things like artificial intelligence to start to solve things like missile trajectories? Obviously, unfortunately, Iron Dome has been in the news a lot over the last year um, because it was put in use. And I think most people can see that it's a highly effective um, defense system for the state of Israel. Yes, thank you for that introduction and it i agree it is a it's in the news it is highly effective and and as you as you said it is built on millions and millions of sensors and the way that those are ultimately being able to be processed is through this ai based tool that detects neutralizes those incoming missiles through very quick calculations and predictive analytics is what it sounds like to me. And now what that's being used for is applying that to electricity buying and selling. 
Yeah, yeah. So, so I think effectively um, what we did as a company was we looked at um, the the problem we were working on: massively distributed computational capabilities, um, lots and lots of sensors. And uh, we stepped back and we looked at the the energy market and what was happening. This transition, which we'll talk a little bit more about, but transition to distributed energy resources, all these things that are out there on the grid and the need to connect and to orchestrate those. And so in some ways, there's some really interesting parallels. It's certainly not the exact same software, but in a lot of ways, you're solving some very similar problems as you connect to more and more things and you have to um, orchestrate them over you know, a large area and a large number of nodes of topology. Interesting. Okay, so it it is very much the very similar idea in that you have all of these different spots of data, all of these different inputs, and ultimately what you're trying to do is make all of it run as smoothly as possible. That's right. And so and so with the with the electricity market my my assumption has always been that basically if we need more power we we generate more power so i guess what is what is that big question mark what's that big problem that that you are trying to solve then with with all these different input values yeah so uh, look the grid has historically been very much unidirectional you had you know generation to transmission to the distribution system to the consumer you know whether that's our houses whether it's commercial and industrial customers and you know that's a model that's been in place you know since the founding of of utilities um what's what's driving that change is a couple things you have sort of some macro level themes so you've got obviously um you know, the need to start to decarbonize. So you have utilities and energy providers thinking about those sources of power in a different way, in a cleaner um, way. You have what I would describe as, a, you know, a huge increase in decentralization of power generation. So as we, you know, as we push out more and more things into the grid, um, things like, you know, uh, PV, solar, um, but all the things that affect the edge of the grid, um, whether that's, you know, you're charging a car, whether you're heating your um, your uh, water heater, that's a that's a form of a battery, or whether or not you have a battery, you know, in your house, or whether or not you discharge a battery from your car, what you now have is um, a very much a bi-directional relationship on the grid. So it's no longer this sort of one-way you know pathway, and that that evolution has been under underway for quite some time. But it's really it's really picked up pace, um, you know, as as sort of this you know renewable technology and distributed energy resources have picked up in the marketplace. But ultimately, um, the the big problem we're trying to solve is uh, not just you know how do you handle those, but how do you start to shape these um, energy curves that we live with today? So um, most folks know that you know the time of pricing of electricity today has uh, very little elasticity. So, so essentially, you have very, very expensive energy when people come home from work. And, uh, you know, let's just say from four to nine o'clock at night. And it's also, of course, when a lot of these renewable sources, wind and solar, tend not to produce as much. So one of the challenges we have as an industry is 
how do you create sort of the best portfolio of energy um, generation and energy consumption? How do you affect the way we, we absorb and consume electricity in a way that hit that fits those capacity models the best? So often we yeah, it gets referred to as a duck curve. It looks a little bit like a duck. And what we're trying to do is shape that curve um, so that we can reduce um, reduce the need to use uh, non-renewable energy, things like coal, which we'd like to avoid, and at the same time trying to optimize the grid for um, being financially you know, beneficial to everyone. Okay. That, that makes a lot of sense. I understand conceptually what we're talking about here and the and the the duck curve basically trying to level it out level out our our production versus our demand as as everybody knows i'm a geologist so my head is mostly in the rocks in the subsurface is there a an example that you can give I think before we talked, you had a, a specific example about a a a twenty kilovolt transmission something or other. Can you just walk us through a a real life example of of this supply and demand issue that we are now seeing today that may not have existed twenty years ago? Yeah, yeah, for sure. And uh, Joe, you know I'm a geologist as well, so let's face it. If geologists can't figure this out, we're in big trouble. Um, <laughs> you know, I think there's there's sort of two things to be thinking about a little bit more at the macro level. We, we of course, we're going to have this huge, continue to have this huge proliferation of distributed energy resources on the grid. And we want to orchestrate that so that we get the, the most out of those. Um, at the same time, we want to do that in a way that's responsible to the management of the grid. And, you know, obviously the grid is uh, prone to disruptions. Everyone has dealt with outages. Everyone knows that um, there's vulnerabilities in, in our transmission and our distribution systems. So utilities have a huge challenge in front of them because effectively they are um, promoting more and more distributed energy resources, more DERS as we call them. But at the same time, they have to start to think about how do the, the, um, the influx of all those DERS potentially cause problems for the distribution system? And yeah, one example, I, it's just a very simple example, but if you think, um, you think today about um, your house and you know, outside my window here, my neighbor's yard, we have a 25 KV transformer. That, that transformer was you know, built and designed um, to feed uh, the equivalent of three houses um, when, when it was put in. It's, it's probably about 40 years old, that transformer, which is, is close to the average in the United States. And, um, and that auto transformer operates pretty well for those three houses. And now you start to think about the changing um, landscape of those DERS. So um, we'll just take example, um, if you were to add an EV you know, charging capability for a car, um, there was a recent study done in Massachusetts that looked, looked at the total addition of each EV car and they basically came back and said, look, it's about the equivalent of adding another um, HVAC system, your heating and cooling for your house, which is, let's just call it roughly 50% of your total energy use. It's the thing that, that takes the most energy in most of our houses. So, so give or take, you know, um, with a little bit of disparity there, 
you're, you're every time you add an EV car, you're you're adding um, the equivalent of another half of a house. So these three houses are all doing fine on that one transformer. Um, two of those houses now have Teslas. Um, and uh, I'm pretty sure if all goes well for me, three, three will have a Tesla soon. And so now you've added the equivalent of, you know, one and a half additional homes to that transformer. So over time, that's going to create problems. That transformer wasn't rated and even the, um, the primary, the conductor coming down our street probably wasn't rated for that type of load. And so if you step back from that, you go, boy, we want people to have EV cars. We want them to have solar, right? We want them to do all these great things at their homes that help these brighter causes. But utilities have to know where those things are and they have to be able to have some ability to manage them. And what I mean by that is, I think it's gonna be fine for us to have three EV cars on this transformer, but the utility is the one that knows the, what that transformer was rated for. And they might like to be in the position to create different incentives. So for instance, you know, making sure I'm charging at night, the other person maybe is charging during the day, the third person charges right before the morning. And you know, the utility is gonna be in the best position to think about that curtailment, the way they manage those resources. So all these things are great. All these you know, things are terrific for the grid, but if we don't manage it in the right way, if we don't orchestrate it in the right way, then we're gonna probably cause you know, uh, problems on the distribution system as opposed to benefits. I find it, while, while you were talking, I was thinking that it would make a whole lot of sense for you and your neighbors to talk if, if, if this was common knowledge that this 25 kV transformer could not handle the load of, of all the new cars and there was everybody could agree to just stagger their charging, it would make a whole lot of sense. But you kept mentioning the utilities and providing incentives and and it just seems like that's a significantly easier way to solve this problem. But I guess the the big question is how will how will utilities know all of these different loads and and also something we haven't really talked about since the beginning, all of the additional production from something like residential solar. Right. Right. Is, yep. So I guess the the question is how is Empressed stepping into this issue and trying to solve it? Yeah, no, I, I mean, it's a great question. So I think you're right. I mean, in an ideal way, maybe we would all communicate, but maybe neighbors don't like each other because, you know, whatever reason. And and that's hard. That's hard to coordinate. There's a lot of variability in that. Um, ultimately, what Empress does as a company, that the, the core of what we do as a company is build software that we call DERMS or Distributed Energy Resource Management. That software is really designed to take into account all of these variable DERs um, and not just where they are, but how they're affecting the grid and what the behavior of them are. So let me just give you an example. Um, you know, I gave one example, maybe some constraints around when we would charge cars. There could be also some constraints or at least some benefits around when we want to put solar um, onto the grid or when we even want to discharge batteries from those cars back onto the grid. And those business rules um, uh, that get built into that can get very complex. So what a DERMS is effectively doing in the most basic form is it's looking at the energy profile a day out and it's saying, 
what is the best model? What are the best decisions I can make for all these different DERs out there that give me the best um, amount of energy? Maybe the least, that can be based on anything. Maybe the least amount of burning fossil fuels. Um, maybe it's uh, so I don't have to buy um, energy off the spot market. Maybe it's a financial model um, and effectively builds out a curve that says for the next 24 hours, we are going to take all sorts of actions to bring certain things onto the grid, take other things off the grid, curtail certain things that shapes that curve and gives us the most optimized DER plan that we can possibly bring. And I'm talking about complexity, but some of these, some of these things get really, really difficult. So just let's take a water heater as an example. You know, um, you can you can heat your water at night, and that the water heater behaves like a like a battery. It'll stay pretty hot. So you don't have to be heating that battery that 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 water heater at the most expensive time of the day. But certain um, you know certain people might say. I'm, I'm fine with you heating it and stopping to heat it, but I don't want you to stop the heating it, you know, after 8 a.m. in the morning. That's when I take a shower or please only do this twice a week. So you can imagine each one of those durs is going to have a different set of business rules around how you interact with it. And now imagine trying to manage that in a cohesive way. You, you can't do it. Humans, they, there's too many variables. And so the only way to manage it is with very complex software that can take all those inputs and use artificial intelligence to effectively come up with what that optimized um, demand and DER plan looks like over the next 24 hours. Um, without a system like that, you know, it's uh, you would never be able to, the, the computations that would need to take place would be, you know, far beyond anything you could do manually. This may not be a relevant question, but I as you're talking about the water heater and just the simple complexities of when the end user wants it charged and when you want it to for sure be charging and and those different saying only Tuesdays and Thursdays are the days I want you to to run this scenario where I give you permission to turn off my heater how do you actually who who makes those decisions how do you go around even talking to every individual and energy resource right. to to set those up? Yeah, exactly. That's a great question. And, and there's sort of two sides of that question. How do you talk to them? And how do you also make sure you have the right incentives to drive you know, the right behavior? Um, so the, the first thing is that most utilities, and, and certainly this is a big part of DERMS, uh, a big part of that software that, that we build, is around the customer-facing portals. And so, as an example, you know, I get my utility bill, and if you're using Empress Derm software, you know, it will ask you a series of questions. It'll say, do you have a controllable thermostat? Do you have an EV car with an inverter? Do you have PV solar? Okay, yes, great. Um, would you be willing to allow us to connect to those devices? Would you be willing to enter into an agreement with us that allows some level of controllability. Now, most of us, you know, don't dig someone else controlling, you know, our temperature. And so that's where those also come bundled with what we often just describe as energy programs. And so there are various incentives that say, listen, if you're willing to let us, for instance, drop 
you know, um, uh, excuse me, or, or, or not let you drop below 72 degrees in your house on a, on a very hot day, you know, three times a year, we're going to take X amount off your bill. It's just one really good example of incentive. And you click yes in that customer portal. And you say, yeah, I think I am willing to do that. And, you know, um, are you willing to uh, set a fixed schedule for your EV charging during the week? Is that something that's appropriate for you? Maybe, maybe it doesn't work. Yeah, I think I can. And you're going to then click through the parameters. Um, what you're doing is you're basically entering into agreement with the grid provider um, to, to sort of give up a little bit of control um, to ultimately help out with some of their problems. But you're getting back. You know, incentive utilities are often um, very much willing to uh, create financial incentives for folks to behave like that. Um, so that's one part. And then, of course, you know, some of the complexity of DERMS, um, probably a little bit less interesting, but is all the, the uh, reconciliation you then have to do on the backside. You know, I, I gave you this incentive and then I, I tested it four times. Um, one of the four times you, you decided you didn't want to participate. Um, so you bowed out. So maybe that changes the incentive. So you also have to sort of do the um, the retroactive reconciliation of those things as well. And that's really all sort of packaged into um, the software that utilities use. Yeah, that is it's it's fascinating to think about all the different aspects of that. And so that sounds like the way that you uh, you determine what what different steps you can take to to optimize grid and energy usage through this DERMS management software is, is mostly on the utility side. So it sounds like the utilities are, are kind of where that natural fit is for this, this managers management software. It, is that where you're seeing the most interest and demand for this solution or is it somewhere else in the in the the grid and energy infrastructure, yeah, uh, that's a terrific question. I I would almost I would almost bifurcate the way the markets are going now. There there um, there will absolutely um, continue to be a need for every utility to use the software that we're describing. I, it's not really an if; it's sort of a when. Some utilities might step back and say, "Boy, you know, we don't have a huge you know." Um, uh, penetration of, of distributed energy resources today, we can probably wait a little bit longer. I, I'm not sure that's always the best, um, you know, the best strategy. But every utility is going to need um, to operate a DERMS. They need to have that system integrate with their other control systems. So, you know, a lot of utilities have invested heavily in things like control systems, SCADA or ADMS. These are real-time software solutions that are really well designed for um, switching and sort of managing the grid on a day-to-day -day basis. And, and the DERMS needs to integrate with a lot of those existing systems for utilities. So that, that's going to that's gonna continue to really be a very large drive for the market. Um, and we certainly see that, um, that a lot of utilities this year um, are going out into selection processes, really trying to evaluate you know, the technology that they'll need. The, the, the second place that we are really seeing continue to emerge um, is around, you know, sort of this concept of, of new energy providers um, that are often, you know, non-regulated, unlike some of these utilities that have to deal with, you know, state or federal regulation. And what seems to be happening there is you have more and more companies that realize their potential 
to become an aggregator of electricity and sell it back into the market is really beneficial. Often we will um, we'll sort of describe that as a virtual power plant. So you can imagine if I live in a neighborhood here and everyone has um, some, some um, a solar on their rooftops and they also have some battery capacity, whether it's coming from EV or if it's a wall battery. And, and all of a sudden we get together and we say, look, um, together, you know, we could probably manage the capacity of this neighborhood, but also sell power back when, when it's most advantageous from a financial perspective. And you also have a lot of companies doing that. Companies that have a lot of rooftop solar are realizing it's great to pay less on their energy bill, but they could also start to sell energy back into the market. And so um, as we look at that, the evolution of those type of companies, and, and there's been a bunch of regulatory stuff that's done over the last year, FERC 2222, is really um, uh, promoting this idea that more and more folks can become aggregators. One of the best example is um, this, this concept of a community source aggregator. And California really led the way. Um, and now we have dozens of other states. New York is um, starting a major CCA effort on New Hampshire. Um, pretty much at least uh, over half the states, I think by the end of the year, will be creating this concept of a CCA. And, and that very much is the same thing. It, it, it's probably a company that doesn't own any wires. And what they're really doing is aggregating various sources and bringing them to the market to get the best result for those customers. And so this, this non-regulated part of the industry really does seem to be taking off. We're also seeing it become um, extremely important in, uh, in Europe as well. One question that I have while you were while you were talking about the the derms and all of the different distributed electrical resources was the the idea of grid stability and and of course that's that is what derms is is for the the magic number that I have heard before is that as we are adding on these intermittent renewables wind and solar the the magic number is twenty percent once we hit about twenty percent of of overall grid capacity then we really need to have a a strong management system to to work in those renewables as best they can otherwise we start losing stability and losing reliability in the grid is that since you're in this space and this is really what you are are trying to solve is that grid stability where is that is that accurate? Is that the same number where kind of you see the the most value starting to take off, or is it is it sooner, later? Mm -hmm. Can you comment on that at all? Yeah, I, I think you know yeah twenty percent gets used you know at a macro level um, quite frequently, and and I think it's probably pegged to some really good data. Um, I think you if you start to if you start to drill into that, if you kind of go the other direction and and think about the distribution system today, 20%, you know, um, uh, 20% renewable energy on a, on a single feeder, a single circuit or you know, a single substation, as an example, might be a massive problem. Um, you know, you might have an older set of equipment at that substation. You might have poor protective devices on that circuit. Um, you may have really, really old transformers, right? So 
Um, so as a broad stroke sort of, um, you know, uh, a rule of thumb, I think that's probably right. Um, now, when you get a little bit more granular about it, um, you know, it, it, it uh, well, you know, there's sort of, back to geology, uh, geology terms, there's, there's lumpers and splitters, right? When you talk about geologic time, some people like to lump things, sometimes they split them. That problem, you know, can get very, very difficult at a granular level. You could have some very, very difficult problems with some aspects of your network. And then the, the converse is true. There are probably other parts, you know, of a modernized grid that could deal with more distributed generation without major disruptions at a higher than 20%. So in, in general, um, I think, you know, just speaking as an American here um, in our grid and, and what we care about here, um, I think waiting to see um, it would be a really, really big mistake for um, the stability of the way we deliver electricity today. And I think that's why you have a lot of utilities, you know, that are nowhere near, you know, 20% penetration yet. They're probably closer to two starting to implement DERMs now because they know that they don't know everything. They know that they're not sure of all the problems that are going to come and they're trying to get ready for that proactively. Yeah, that's a really important point. The idea of prevention and and being ahead of it and and being proactive as opposed to reactive. I think that's it's very important and a, a very, very important point that you make. And I also want to bring this back to the the inception, the start of Emprest. The company started as a defense contractor building the software for missile defense, the Iron Dome. And when when we boil that down, really it is a it's a life or death situation and and it's funny to well it's it's not funny it is it is very relevant and important to to make this comparison that access to electricity really is and can be life or death as well and right now i'm thinking about i i've overused the example of the winter storm in texas and February of 2021, but there were multiple infrastructure failures and that ultimately led to loss of life. And looking back on it, having having hindsight, you could say that a distributed energy resource management system could have increased the reliability of the grid or it could have it could have helped change the outcome of those infrastructure failures, maybe somehow. But ultimately, I think as you're talking right now, the idea of being proactive and implementing this DERMS software now, as opposed to looking back and saying, maybe we need to get this software. I think it's it's important to think about mm-hmm. and important to to be ahead of it. Yeah. Yeah, you know, look, I think, you know, energy, you know, access to, to clean, you know, reliable and safe energy, um, you know, without sort of overdoing it, it's, it's become a basic human necessity. I, I mean, you know, if we think about all the other societal you know, issues we have, right, you know, whether it's access to healthcare or, or whatever the thing is, none of those things are possible without, without energy. 
Um, and, you know, in this country, you know, for the most behalf, we've been able to, um, I think, you know, take it a little bit for granted. We don't we don't think a whole lot about it until we don't have it. Um, but if you step back and just, you know, even think about what's going on in, in Eastern Europe right now, you have Ukraine and whole cities without power and, and people dealing with the long term consequences of that. You have you have whole, you know, European countries being held hostage by Russia um, because they're dependent on them for for energy and energy and, and access to energy is is just going to be absolutely one of the most critical um, defense and decisions that countries um, have to make over the next, you know, I would have said the next decade, but, you know, having to do it right now. Um, you have all of the all of the European Union looking to cut thirty percent of their energy dependency from from Russia by the end of the year. That's massive, um, and so so you you I, you know in some ways it's kind of terrifying, but in other ways you go, boy, you know we have a lot of new ways to solve this without necessarily having to use hydrocarbons, and and that's got some benefits. And and so yeah, when I when I step back and I think about this thing and. The way the way Empress certainly approaches it is, you know, um, we were very attracted to um, this market because we saw it as a very complex problem to solve that looked a little bit like the ones we've solved in the past. But I think one of the other things we've really learned as a company is, you know, we we sort of approach it in the same way, and no, there's no margin for failure, right? Obviously, yes, if you fail in a missile defense system, people will lose their lives. Um, and that's really the same way we feel about the grid, and it's the same way we feel about enabling um, distributed energy resources, you know, to help, you know, create a more sustainable, you know, less carbon um, dependent, you know, future for, for our country and for the world. So those are the things that drive us as a company. So I think when we kind of look back to our, um, the DNA that got our company going, you know, most of those, um, those things that drove us still feel you know, very much appropriate for solving these these macro level energy problems. Mm-hmm. Yep, and I think it it is very clear in the in the fact that tackling such complex and difficult problems that that have real implications it it is it's evident in in the DNA of Empressed. So with with all that in mind. What do you see as the future of the U.S. electrical grid, the role of, of this distributed energy resources management software, and of Empressed kind of in the whole mix? Yeah, no, thanks, Joe. It's a great question. You know, look, if we could redesign our grid from the ground up, right, we would have done it differently here in the United States. We, we you know, we, for a whole bunch of reasons, have a, you know, what's called a radial distribution system. You can imagine like um, if you look at a leaf, a dendritic sort of spread out, you know, that that's not the best way to design a grid. Um, you know, it, it creates vulnerabilities. Uh, everyone knows most of our electricity is overhead. Um, we have 80 mile per hour winds today here in Boulder. So, you know, that that creates vulnerabilities. There are there are things that if you could start over today, you know, you would do very differently. Um, you know, we don't, we don't have that luxury. Uh, we don't have the time. We don't have the ability to rethink every aspect of the grid. So what we have, I think, is really 
a grid that needs to continue, you know, to evolve. We've got to make use of the, the, the massive amount of money and infrastructure that we've built in this country um, that operates extremely well. But we have to let it evolve in a way that really does allow for the inclusion of all these grid edge things that are going to help you know, solve the equation. So you know, when I look forward and, and I kind of imagine you know, where we're going to be in the next 10 years, um, you know, I really, you know, my hope is by using Derm software, um, you know, we will be able to you know, manage a more effective grid that has more renewable resources, that is less dependency on things like coal and even gas, um, and also has the benefit of increased reliability. Um, you know, and I think, you know, there's great, if you look at the infrastructure bill that, you know, the bipartisan infrastructure bill that just got put in place, it's the great example of sort of Washington stepping back and going, boy, you know, we've got, we've got a challenge here, but we've also got this incredible opportunity. You know, let's, let's start to put some money behind that and let's start to get ourselves ready for the next hundred years. Um, and I feel like as a country, we're, we're starting to do the right things there. Obviously, um, for Empress as a company, um, there's, you know, 3,400 electric utilities in this country. Um, we want to make sure all 3,400 electric, <laughs> utilities have access to our software and can, can make the best informed decisions using it. Mm. I like it. So now we've got a few final questions. These are a little bit different, a little bit more fun. Some people think these are, are even more challenging than the rest of the questions. So we'll, we'll see how you do here. The first question being, what's the most important book you've ever read? Wow. I guess I probably shouldn't say The Hobbit because that would, that would be really relevant. Um, you know, I, I, I'm sort of, I'm not a huge fan of reading a ton of these business books. I'm looking at my shelf and I've got a bunch of them and I always feel like they're, they're sort of, um, you know, a little bit, a little bit preachy, you know, about all the great things everyone did. They sort of never recognize all the mistakes. Um, there, there's, there's one book though, uh, that was written on quite a while back called the alchemy of growth. And, and, you know, it was sort of my first introduction to this idea of, you know, business planning, around three horizons. So how do you how do you sort of run a company and a business in a way that thinks about, you know, paying the bills today, but also is thinking about sort of the really um, interesting and new problems you can solve simultaneously? How do you how do you sort of break out? Um, it, it's it's really had um, it's probably had a really big impact on me personally, the way uh, the way I think about running companies and the way I think about innovating. Um, so I don't know that's the most important book to the industry, but certainly uh, for me at a personal level, it's been very important uh, uh, professionally as well. Yeah, and I like that recommendation because as we think about the energy transition and as we think about what needs to be done in order to reach net zero, it is going to require not only paying the bills today, but also innovating new solutions that that completely change how we use how we view and how we interact with energy so i think it it is definitely relevant to be looking at at the whole spectrum of business and how you can solve a problem with or through through the growth of a business no doubt yeah 
I think, you know, it's interesting um, that there was a report that came out this week. Um, it's sort of the new assessment of where we're at in terms of, you know, controlling climate change and, and ensuring we don't, you know, increase by, you know, 2.6 degrees Fahrenheit. And, and I, you know, it was one of those things that was a little bit depressing, but, but it was also, it was kind of interesting, you know, uh, the, the summation of this federal report from all these scientists that have worked, you know, really hard. I think they publish it about every seven years, you know, effectively said, you know, we, we really have everything we need today to solve this problem pretty close. And now, yes, it's a hard road to hoe. It's not, not but, but the things are there. The thing that always sort of, I, I kind of, um, you know, I kind of think of, which is, is sort of interesting is, you know, 10, 10 years ago, or maybe a little bit more than 10 years ago, but everyone was talking about peak oil, right? And, and the fact that we would be, we would not have enough energy on the planet you know, to, um, to exist after a certain point. And, and then lo and behold, you know, as a society, we, and scientists, engineers developed fracking, right. And, and, and that changed the entire energy landscape for the world, um, that technology. And lo and behold, there was a lot of natural gas that, that we had access to, um, you know, here we are maybe eight years later, um, where the cost of renewable energy, is now to build a larger plant for, for solar, as an example, is cheaper than building a natural gas plant. No one, no one foresaw this. And I, I think sometimes, you know, we we kind of look at the, the dark side of these projections. And the one thing I, I've always been a believer in is that we as a as a American society for sure, but as a species, are always able to innovate our way out of a lot of these problems. Now we have to recognize the problem, we have to be honest about it. But, you know, I, I feel the same way. And, and, and these books that are well-designed, that, that sort of make you step back and think about having the fortitude to solve bigger problems um, are important. And, and as a society, as in, in the United States, I, it's one of the reasons why I don't panic when I think about, you know, things like climate change. We don't know the other things we will have at our disposal to solve this problem. But I guarantee you, we will have other things in our arsenal to solve that problem. Derms, derms is just one that we can work on today, but five years from now or 10 years from now, there may be completely new ways of, of helping our, our planet. Uh-huh. The next question, I think you've kind of already answered without answering, but the question is, when will we be net zero? So I think I know why you feel the way you're going to answer. Now let's just hear the number. <laughs> yeah. You know, I, it's interesting. I, 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 um, the, the United States uh, DOD, the Army, um, is is planning on you know driving towards net zero by 2050, and um, you know I kind of look at that and go, holy cow, you know if the Army can do it and and is, is having setting that sort of a ambitious goal, shouldn't shouldn't we all be doing it? Now you've got you know many 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 companies now that are already talking about you know 2030, 2035. Um, you have large oil and gas companies that are projecting 2050, which is just, it's staggering. It's hard to get your, your, your head around it. So, you know, yeah, I think it's probably hard to put a true number on, on you know, net zero. Are we talking about everything we do? Are we talking about just the grid? Are we talking about our cars? But I, I really do think in the United States that by 2050, um, that can be accomplished. And, and I, like I said earlier, 
I think there's a lot of new things that we don't know about yet that will help us get to that goal. Yep. I like your optimism and I, I like that perspective on knowing that innovation is going to continue. And because of that, we can be optimistic and keep moving forward. So the the last question, the last final question is, do you have one question for me? Uh, well, I mean, you're a geologist. So I think my question for you is we've got, you know, we really do have to step back and figure out, you know, as we develop, you know, renewable power and, and batteries, where can we go get more nickel? <laughs> where can we go get more olivine? Um, you've got uh, really, really creative companies like Tesla today, um, you know, buying mines and, and doing really, you know, uh, great work. But yeah, no, as a geologist, I'd say, where should, we, where should we go look for some more nickel? That's, I think, going to be a really important part of the equation. Yeah, that is, there's, there's a, I guess, two sides to this answer that I'm going to give. One is we should try and leave as much of it in the ground as possible. That is something that, that my company, PetroLearn, is working on is a synthetic geothermal reservoir, basically using the earth as a battery. So instead of pulling it out and refining it into higher energy density batteries to put at the surface, we were trying to develop things subsurface. So that's one aspect of let's, instead of increasing our need, let's, let's decrease that and utilize the earth for the battery that it is. The other aspect that, that I, I'm hesitant to share is that Alaska has significant resources, significant mining resources, but the problem is that it is also this this wonderful ecosystem and and relatively pristine ecosystem in very many parts. So there's and I I have this I have a it is a complicated relationship with the mining industry because that's where I got a lot of my data for my PhD because the mining industry, they are the ones going to the remote parts of Alaska to drill holes and to look for these absolutely necessary minerals that that we need for, for the energy transition and for today's modern life. but. But at the same time, it is a, it's this hard, it's this hard uh, dichotomy of how much of, how much of these minerals do we need versus how much do we need the Copper River salmon run? Right. Or how much do we need a pristine ecosystem yeah. for, for migratory birds? Agreed. It's, Agreed. And, and, you know, I, I really do think some of these mining companies are getting incredibly innovative around, you yep. know, to move away from strip mining, to move away from, you know, these historically uh, environmental catastrophic methodologies. But there's nothing that, you know, there, there's no way to extract, I, I agree, resources without causing some damage. It's going to be a big, it's going to be a big challenge. I love the first part of your uh, equation, though. I mean, Earth, Earth is a huge battery and getting geothermal you know, at scale, um, which uh, uh, thankfully we need a lot of geologists like you and I to go do. 
um, could just have a massive impact on our energy portfolio. It's, it just has always felt like something that it, we haven't even begun to, uh, to tap. So yeah, really, yep. really cool. Yeah. Yep. I'm excited for it and I'm excited for, for the future, the low carbon society that we're going to live in. So with that, thank you again, Andy, for joining me on the show. Before we sign off, is there anything else that you would like to say? No, it's been great chatting, Joe. I really, uh, really appreciate the time. Really appreciate the great questions today. Thank you. Well, Andy, thank you again. And thank you everyone for joining us on this episode of the Energy Transition Solutions Podcast. Please do me a favor, give me a five-star rating and leave a review. Doing these two simple actions will help these stories reach a wider audience. If you want to hear more great stories and keep up to date with the energy industry, connect with OGGN on LinkedIn or visit OGGN.com. If you're in the Houston area, go try out the Canon. Mention OGGN and they will give you a free day pass. It is my office when I'm in Houston, and it's also where we host our monthly OGGN industry mixers. If you have any questions, comments, corrections, or have a story that you would like to share, Send me an email or find me on LinkedIn. And until next time, remember to keep it low carbon and high energy. Join us again next week for another low carbon, high energy story on the Energy Transition Solutions Podcast, a production of the Oil & Gas Global Network. Learn more at OGGN.com.